Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is June 28th. We're almost in July right now. Oh <laughs> I'm here with Tammy and Andy. Tammy is in one of the sweltering heat buckets in America right now. In fact, I would say, I, I think that Portland, Oregon is like oh the swelteringest of the heat buckets. It's so but bad. you're not so far from it in a in a heat bucket that's, you know, I would say the number two heat bucket, which is uh, the <laughs> Seattle Tacoma area. How hot is it? It feels like it? it. It's going to be. Heat bucket a term? I know. I no. was. <laughs> no, I just came up with it. Okay. But I feel like I said it, it and sort I was of like, it's kind of apt. Yeah. Um, I, how hot is it? It's going to be 112 today. I have oh my a, God. a frozen washcloth on my well. My parents are freaking out because they are like, there's never been a time we've lived here, you know, for our 40 yeah. something years where it ever went over 100. And it's like, it's pretty miserable. That's insane. Um, <sighs> what does yeah. it feel like in the Pacific Northwest to be 100? Look, I grew up with several 112 degree yeah. days. But, really? you know, it, it was like, you know, it's to be you expected. just become normalized with it. Yeah. Everyone has air conditioning or not everyone, but, you know, more people have air conditioning than in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, people kind of figure out how to deal with heat. Totally. Yeah. But like, what's it, what is it like? <laughs> I was like, I was comparing it to when there's like a typhoon in Los Angeles and people are just lose their freaking minds because they don't know how to like drive in the rain. It's like that. <laughs> We're like, no one has AC here. My parents own a fan from like 1982, you know, like we just don't know how to cope. So we're all just collapsing. I mean, it feels, I mean, you know, we've been in it in New York City, obviously, for a long time, but I don't know. It no, feels very strange high. here. Yeah. 112 seems way too high. It's really hot. I mean, it doesn't have the humidity, you know, of Asia or yeah, or the East Coast, but it's just weird. It's weird. <laughs> we're not prepared. It's like a burning heat. Or yeah. Like it's just, and like, I don't know. Torching heat. I've just had... Yeah. Yeah, frozen frozen washcloths all over, like on my head for like days. <laughs> Your parents <laughs> didn't go out and buy a fan. Is there like are there no fans around? They're just cheap, I guess. They're gonna be sold out at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, isn't SF like seventy? Like it's like this pocket of good weather. In the oh yeah, it was cold. It's this a morning. cool bucket. I had to, yeah. like when I dropped my kid off for school. She had like a big raincoat and a sweatshirt on. I mean, it's cold. it was cold here. Oh, it sounds um, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would imagine so. But um, and it was foggy. <laughs> yeah, the weather's not. It's been cold and foggy here. I guess it. I don't. I can't imagine it ever getting super hot here. I mean, I guess there are hot days. Like last summer, there were a couple nights where we had to sleep in the basement. But I don't know. Nothing like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Do you see this as like a? harbinger of the climate apocalypse or do you think like this is just something that happens and you know um perhaps that doesn't mean that the climate apocalypse isn't coming but that you know maybe this is just something that happened yeah i mean it feels more like an apocalypse than just a you know a brief blip just because it's in the context obviously of like the fires and all the other stuff that's been happening over these many years right and it's like days of 100 degree weather it's not Portland has been going through it. Like Portland I remember last year mess. we had this like, uh, <laughs> you know, when we were having our smoke days here, which now happen every year here in the Bay Area, yeah. like uh, it was bad, but it was like parts per million you would look and it'd be like, you know, I would go outside at the beginning because I was, you know, I was just like, fuck this, I'm going outside. And then I would get a headache within like 10 minutes, oh you know, and then I'd run back inside. But Portland's parts per million, um, like smoke whatever thing during last fall was like 
I don't know. I think it was like 10 times higher than it ever got here. It oh, not. I, yeah, I just remember yeah. my friends in Portland. They they did flee. Like they just started right. driving and went somewhere. Right. And now it's like 112. I can't even imagine what 112 in Portland feels like. But yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Where do you escape? Do you go to the ocean or do you go? Well, they couldn't go to the ocean because the fires at that point were yeah. at the ocean. The fires. At yeah. that point, yeah. I think my friends drove to New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's quite an escape. Yeah. Washingtonians are good, yeah, going Valley. to the ocean, I think. Yeah. 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 Oof, I, mean, my, I don't know. I don't know. My parents said they slept in their uh, camper van the other day. Oh, night. really? Okay. Yeah. Because it has an AC on. It has AC on. And it's like, so too funny. hot in the house. Yeah, because normally like you don't. I mean, AC was completely out of the question. You would never need that when I was growing up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't have it here either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's not 112 degrees here going on. And, um, Tammy, you wanted to talk about this. Tell us why you wanted to talk about it. <laughs> Well, it's sort of a local story. Well, it feels local, but it's really global, which is that, of course, you know, there's a pandemic shopping spree and we're all kind of um, at home still and ordering a lot online. And, you know, I think we've talked about a bunch of like the semiconductor stuff, supply chain stuff. We obviously talked about the ever given being stuck in the Suez Canal. But here where I am in in Western Washington and in California and New Jersey and in China, there are just boats. There are shipping boats like lined up in the sea. And it's causing all sorts of problems, like also close to where Jay's parents live, of pollution um, of various forms. And I think it really just brings home this feeling of connection, I think, I guess, between like our consumer habits, the global economy, where our shit is coming from, um, the fact that we're destroying our environment to do all this. And I know we haven't talked about the environment a ton on this show, but it's obviously something we care about and want to do more about. Um, And I guess a a question I had for you guys was for me this week, like between the 100 degree temperatures and looking at the boats, I've been thinking a lot about this thing that, you know, it's obviously true that my individual action saving water and not shopping on Amazon or whatever, you know, is not going to change the world. But it kind of feels like it is important, you know, in this moment, like it kind of feels like I am connected to these global supply chains and to the way that the world is going. Um, So I guess I was curious if you guys feel that way, if like in certain aspects of coming out of this pandemic economy with all the reevaluation we're doing, that you're seeing more of this, the personal and the structural linking up and how yeah. we're generally supposed to feel about this as people who are trying to do good. Well, just just to clarify a little bit, like what actually is happening outside of boats being kind of like, you know, in the water, which is, a set, you know, presumably what boats should be doing is being in the water. Like what, what, <laughs> right. What's actually happening here? Yeah. So there are labor shortage reasons and just general logistics reasons, um, not just on labor, but like on actual movement where there's basically a backlog um, and... I think Andy's going to also talk about like what that looks like on the Chinese supply side. But here it's basically like they can't unload ships fast enough. So that's both because of like certain ecological factors of like there are certain kinds of ships that can only unload in certain kinds of places. And all of the ships are super overloaded with stuff that they need to unload. And then that stuff needs to go from the docks to the warehouse. Right. So this is also really interesting you know, thing to think about, like in an Amazon era, where like, what does that mean for like the labor supply chain? Where are the choke points for like labor activism? You know, all this stuff that actually is like a 100 year old question, if you think about like on the waterfront kind of thing. So but that's basically why all these ships are lined up, they can't unload the stuff that they're supposed to load up to get to us. Okay. Um, 
uh, so your question is essentially like, does that, yeah, I mean, the question of like, the, have I seen more of how the world is connected uh, from the pandemic? Yeah, I think because, you know, well, first of all, because of the pandemic itself, right? Yeah, like because for sure. these things travel and now we have the Delta variant coming around and you just think, okay, where the, how did that get here? And, you know, mm-hmm. what are likely ways that it got here? And, you know, without sort of saying like, oh, well, some Indian people got on a plane, <laughs> you know, but like, there are several ways just in the way that, you know, people trace the way in which uh, COVID first got in the United States through Europe or, you know, Italy or soccer matches or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating to see how all this is done. And now there really are, you know, like, it's interesting because you, you, I don't know, have you tried to buy furniture or anything like that during the pandemic? It's yeah. like impossible. Everything exactly, is yeah. like back ordered. Everything is yeah. like books are very difficult to, to, to print right now because mm-hmm. there are supply chain problems within books. There's labor issues everywhere. I don't I've never seen, you know, just anecdotally, I've never seen so many help wanted signs a- everywhere. Yeah. You know, here uh, around where I am. And uh, yeah, it seems like we're kind of like barreling towards some sort of reckoning that's going to be extremely bad. Yeah. But then I, we've kind of thought about, we've thought that for like a year now, you know, and <laughs> the reckoning. In terms I, of what? Uh, like the economy is going to completely collapse, you know, because of some choke point or something like that, or like some sort of fake. Uh, but, you know, the government just sort of pumps money into everything and you know, it keeps yeah. things afloat, it yeah. seems like. But, and maybe, you know, like maybe that's the right way to do it. But it seems like many things are unsustainable right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a general sense I get. And, you know, if, if these boats floating out there forever is like an indication of that, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> anyway, what do you think? Um, well, what I think, I mean, I think kind of what Tammy was hinting at was that, like, this is, this is not a pattern that's going to go away. This is maybe the kind of our new normal in terms of the shift to online shopping, mm-hmm. which has, uh, you know, just from what I read cursorily was, it's kind of like the big shift that's happened. Like when people were buying in stores, there was like a sort of seasonal rhythm to when people buy stuff, what people buy. And now that everyone's online and the internet is, just, you know, magic portal where you can just click and get everything. And especially with, uh, I don't know, I feel like Amazon is even bigger, you know, than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, for sure. Right? Like yeah, one click buying times. and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, that it's overwhelmed what's what's out there and, like, who's going to stop it? Like, who's going to stop the internet? Who's yeah. going to stop Amazon? Um, the ba- My basic understanding of all this, if you want, like, a, like a quick two-minute historical rundown, is uh, the, this comes down to, like, the globalization really begins with or coincides with the creation of the container ship, the container that, you know, whether was it ever given. So if you ever, like, just see those pickup trucks... You know, flying around the highway, they all have the exact same size of containers, right? They're right. all completely modular and fungible and the exact same size. And that replaced uh, the sort of old-fashioned version of shipping, which was boxes of all different sizes and kinds. And it's very labor-intensive, kind of like Popeye kind of comes to mind. Like, that's the kind of person that would be working the ships. And now it's been replaced by a very computerized, automated system with these completely identically sized containers. And as a result of that, it was a very in theory, a very efficient, no waste, you know, like, uh, kind of system. Mm-hmm. And what COVID did was it overwhelmed it, uh, in, in multiple ways. And that's why we both had shortages at the beginning of COVID. And now we have this buildup, this surplus of, um, there's too many ships because these ports, these, all these ports like LA and Seattle, they were, they could predict, you know, in a given year, we'll get a hundred ships. 
and yeah. we have a, a port that can, can that can handle 100 ships. Um, and they didn't have that. They didn't have that slack, you know, to handle 150 ships. So once you go over like what the computers and the models say is possible or predictable, then the buildup just immediately, you know, goes to hell. And so I think a lot of this is also um, these very sleek, well-designed kind of logistics models, which were kind of started the last 20, 30 years, have been overwhelmed. And it sounds like, um, you know, like how how is this going to be reversed with with the shift to online shift online shopping? globalization i mean the i think the in terms of the environmental question it seems like my my thought has always been like uh we should just go back as much as possible to buying local yeah and buying but like you know how much how much can we control i guess on a very basic level i guess you know i think about like let's buy something made in america or you know but like the supplies probably come from asia (laughs) the supplies probably come from another part of the world so it's it's very deceptive or very difficult to really to really practice that. Um, Totally. Yeah. Well, and I I think the other reason people are shopping online is because a lot of brick and mortar is also going to be decimated, you know? So there's kind of this like parallel process of, you know, eroding our day-to-day interactions, you know, and then you have more incentive to buy online. And so I, I feel like, I don't know, I guess I'm just thinking a lot more about individual action, you know, even though I know that's not (laughs) the fix. But I do think we've all been confronted with, like, our role in this to some extent. Yeah. I mean, the Internet makes so much stuff unnecessary. You know, like, books are kind of unnecessary, you know? Books? Uh, yeah. That's I mean, your target, Andy? I read most of my book. I read most books on my phone now. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I love books, but, I love, you know. I need them in paper. We're at this kind of transition point where. Yeah, Tammy, what about your individual choice of printing out every article <laughs> that we send you to read? <laughs> yeah, it's not like 14 point five. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, the paradox or the contradiction, right, is like, we don't need clothes because we're not going out. I mean, I guess yeah. we can go back out, right? But on the other hand, to keep the economy going, to keep everyone's livelihood going, to keep blah, 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 we have to keep buying these clothes, which means we have to keep getting stuff from Asia, basically, where all the clothes are made. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the obvious contradiction between, like, the ecological sustainability, unsustainability of globalization versus, like, well, you know, you got to keep this thing rolling or else everything collapses. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I don't know. How do you think the Chinese are thinking about this moment? Um, I think a lot of the stuff that gets interpreted online in terms of, you know, China's imperial ambitions wanting to take over the world, you know, maybe that stuff is going to be true in 20 years. And um, I'll look back, we'll look back on this as like, this was the pivotal <laughs> moment. But I think honestly, a lot of it is the same situation where they have a, they have an excess of money and investment and nowhere to put it in and they have to look look for other places to invest it in um including like the middle east and 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 you know western asia and and Mm -hmm. india and africa so yeah it's it's a real problem that uh you know i mean these are all kind of the the perennial issues right there's inequality which leads to too much wealth at the top and too, too little at the bottom but those wealthy at the top have to put their money somewhere so they have to keep coming up with these like you know places to invest it in and um, but they don't actually really want to invest in things like infrastructure or better healthcare or better quality of life and so yeah. on. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's an issue. I mean, the thing we should probably talk about at some point, I haven't really spent too much time thinking about it is, 
infrastructure and you know the recent legislation um yeah by biden to i mean if there were if there were to be like a way to revive the economy the u.s economy without depending upon globalization you know it'd be a sort of a national infrastructure plan um but i don't know then yeah. you get into like is that is it nationalist is it anti-china is it anti-asia <laughs> right like asia depends so much upon the u.s market also for its survival um because when we talk about globalization, we're really just talking about Asia, shipping stuff to the United States. Right. That's, that's a huge chunk that's of it. That's basically, yeah, exactly. So. Well, I mean, I think that infrastructure thing, we have to see, like, what Biden capitulates on in his compromises with the Republicans. But, I mean, it seems like he still is pushing some of the health care piece, which I think we discussed, like, when Biden first came into office. And so that's definitely something to look out for that is sort of not dependent on this particular kind of supply chain. Um Aside from medical supplies, but yeah, um, I don't know. I, I feel very, I feel sort of despairing at the same time. I think I, I have like, the, I wouldn't say it's hope, but I do think there's an opportunity for logistics organizing to really come into this and like make a difference because even though Amazon has built in more redundancies in its logistics chain than we've ever seen in the world, really, um, there's also a moment where like if dock workers like struck, like they have so much leverage now, right? Or right you know, truck drivers or so like the Teamsters this past week, like made an announcement that they're really going right. to go hardcore for Amazon organizing. So I do think there's a lot of people thinking about like, where are these choke points in the supply chain? And, you know, how can we do this better? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, so Amazon is fundamentally like the middleman, right? Facilitating between the production of stuff overseas and the distribution of it's it not, over here. Yeah, well, I don't think it's really a middleman because it's it's like a monopoly and monopsony, right? So they're also dictating like what gets manufactured and why. So right, I, right. I I see. I, I mean, they are trying to fill in all the logistics stuff, but they're also the people who manufacture demand. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, is there is there a sense of um, will they are they optimistic that they would be more successful than they were at Bessemer uh, moving forward in terms I, of targeting places that yeah would be nice. i don't know I'm, yeah i'm curious how you guys see it i mean i think a lot of unions are thinking about like yeah we need to do these individual shop floor campaigns and that's kind of like what the law allows here in the united states but at the same time like that's obviously not enough because they're just going to shut down warehouses and like go to a different one you know um but i think that in combination with some of the policy stuff potentially like the teamsters obviously specifically mentioned like antitrust and you know, yeah. maybe sectoral bargaining. Like there are different things I think people are looking out for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It does. It does seem like it's going to be difficult to envision a reversal of the it Amazonification of all retail. Um, I mean, there's no. I was trying to figure this out in my head. Is there a reason why we'd be buying more during COVID other than the convenience of it? Um, like boredom. Is, is, is that the main argument <laughs> that people are just bored at home and buying like extra clothes or extra or whatever? Because I actually kind of think, don't we need fewer stuff? I know. Because yeah, we're not going kinda... out. We don't. I, I haven't bought that. I don't stuff. know. What did you guys buy? Jay, did you are order people buying stuff? more stuff right now? Is that confirmed? Yeah. yeah. That, that's the basic argument, right? That the. It's not just. Are... It's well, not so... backups from, you know, labor issues and, you know, basically 
interruptions in the rhythm of it that lead to bottlenecks or lead to buildups. It's not that. Well, so like one of the things that's definitely been higher in demand is like electronics, you know, both because like obviously parents need tablets and stuff to like educate their kids, but all of the other work from home stuff. So all that stuff is like part of the reason for the semiconductor crunch. So that Uh, like retail has definitely gone way up. I don't know the specific other categories. I mean, Jay, you mentioned furniture. (laughs) Like I assume office furniture has also gone up. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, but also some of it is because, like, they couldn't make any of this stuff because, you know, factories are empty. It's true, yeah. Some part of the supply chain was, like, completely destroyed by the... But Asia's Asia's back up and running. The the issue with boats in the ocean is that they have the stuff. It's been made. It's just that there's too much stuff coming out, um, and it's overwhelming the system. Um, I don't know. I haven't felt the need to buy a lot of stuff. On the other hand, we do seem to get boxes at our door every other day. Yeah, so, what is it full of? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to reverse. I'd be curious, yeah, I'd be curious if other Americans are just um, buying stuff out of boredom right now. Well, you know, you have to buy stuff, right? Or else, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it seems like we're caught in this weird bind here where, um, you know, like if you want to argue for, a, like there's like an end point to all of this argument where you're just like, okay, let's have a totally uh isolationist you know eco right country right. that shuts down the borders yeah you know exactly. and um cuts off all international yeah. trade and yeah i don't know like i don't know tammy it seems like the sort of way i just i want you to respond just like how is that not the end result of like what you start detailing at the beginning of this you know like yeah. your own personal impulses all would like the best <laughs> way to lead to to if you believe that version of the world is the way, best way to conduct bat this sort of stuff then it seems like the actual most efficient way to yield those results is a form of like eco-fascism yeah eco-isolationism yeah i mean and i think like the slip is very seductive you know like i'm not gonna lie like i'm not trying to set up a commune here but like i do think like i get why we go in that direction i mean i think alternatively what it suggests to me and what i'm trying to think about more is like as we see this like unfolding, as we see like the global coming home to our us, like literally, we need to like figure out like how we're going to respond in productive, like collaborative ways. And so, you know, I mean, it's so cheesy, whatever. I feel like I say the same thing on the show every time, but just like that obviously means we need to support and like engage in labor organizing. That obviously means we need to like make sure to lobby for good like social and labor regulatory programs, you know? So I, I guess it's just like a challenge of like, yeah, we're causing this and like we need to figure it out. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I can't. We're not going to stop shopping for food and like basic goods. I mean, we could probably cut down on some of the crap we buy. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> right. But then you're like bankrupting some poor country that, you know, <laughs> is like the, is like the producer of X, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. I, 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 mean, I I do see these things as kind of a that. binary, you know, like I don't um, like I don't think that it's possible to find like some way through this that's not that doesn't lead in like you know full growth and have uh, technology solve or uh, you know full on commune style you know <laughs> lock the lock the borders don't let anyone else in and buy all internally type of stuff you know like I don't I don't really like maybe there are better ways but like some of the issues that I have is just that like. Well, if it's an emergency at this level, then, you know, we got to pick like an emergency, uh, which I do think it is, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, we have to pick like an emergency type of pathway. 
And I don't know, for obvious reasons, you know, like I'm somewhat skeptical of the like shut everything down and, um, you know, stop buying things and yeah, uh, shut down all international trade and go into full on eco protectionist mode. Well, I think well, I think one left. I'm not saying that's this. what you're saying. I'm just saying that I think that's <laughs> I'm the, so offended. No, I just think that's the inevitable. I do think that's the inevitable outcome. Well, I hear you like in theory, but I do think like in practice, that's not where we need. I think I think one left is one left to spin on this is that the reason the United States relies so much on Asia to make this stuff is because Asian labor is cheap and uh, the average cost for an American to buy a T-shirt today is just so much lower than it was in 1950 because mm-hmm. of globalization and all that stuff. And, you know, people would say, like, globalization and especially, like, cheap Asian labor subsidized the falling real wages in the United States, right? Like, we, we, we didn't notice how badly the working class suffered in the United States because stuff was getting cheaper because it came from around the, around the world. So we could make an argument. Maybe, it could, you know, the argument would be something like, well, stuff like clothing, which we know we can make in the United States, um, doesn't have to come from halfway around the world. It could be made in the United States. And part of what would make that feasible is obviously like higher wages, you know, just kind of like raise the minimum wage or raise, uh, you know, sort of like class struggle and rebalance inequality. But also like, I guess this is where the infrastructure plan comes in, right? If shipping was made so cheap because of better infrastructure internationally, then, you know, something like, you know, better, something better than trucks on the freeway in the United States would also... Drone delivery, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, they're working what, on it. Yeah, like, could that could that make could that make like, like American made like, isn't that cheaper, better? You know? Like drone delivery, it's electric and it's you know. Yeah, uh, but there's no jobs there. <laughs> well, sure, I know, but I'm just saying. Like, I don't think you know, there's enough airspace. But there's probably yeah. enough airspace. I really don't just think be really, there is. It would be really loud. <laughs> it would be so loud. <laughs> I went the other day to uh, the Amazon recruiting center here just to check out like what the wages and stuff were. It was really interesting. Like they're hiring like so many people and they have these like, really elaborate bonus structures right now. So like if I took a warehouse job that's like the closest to me here, there are some times where I could get like a hundred, five hundred thousand dollar bonuses just for starting. It's just five hundred thousand like, dollar bonus. No, five hundred or a thousand. Oh, five hundred. Oh, like, like, wow. It's like the wow. pay is like seventeen, eighteen, twenty bucks. Right. You know, I don't bad, know. Yeah. It's fascinating, and it's just like. But is it the crazy? It's like, disturbing. You have to do twenty boxes and every five seconds. Yeah. Kind of well, thing. the rate is for packing is like two hundred items. But it's like it's like hour. the crazy. It's really yeah. Kind of well, stuff. like it's so hot. Anyway, I just mentioned that because I like so much of our economy is being subsumed in this one company's like logistics yeah. infrastructure. You know, so maybe yeah, like, that will be then drone operators will be the next job. I mean, I think about like you know what 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 like a good working class middle class job would have been like in this country every fifty years, and it's like different. You know, like I remember a professor of mine who grew up in Detroit in the 40s was like, he worked in a car factory. That's just yeah. like what he did uh, in on his way to college. Whereas today we would be, I don't know, I worked in a shopping mall, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a good, I didn't think of it as working class, but it was just like a middle-class job that yeah. an American has. Um, or like, you know, as in Philadelphia, a lot of people work in the healthcare. And I was reading um, Gabe Bernard's book about the shift from like mining in Pittsburgh or the steel refineries to like healthcare and that's like that's like a that's like a good middle class job these days um for for a lot of people and well, so it seems some like some of it you know yeah i mean you know there's like 
gradations. And so is Amazon going to start, Amazon service is in mm-hmm. distribution logistics. Is that going to kind of start to suck up and represent this larger and larger share of like, a, you know, high school, college educated worker? I mean, they have industry. that program right now. Right. Like they, yeah. where they actively recruit high school and college students into both seasonal work and managerial programs. Yeah. It's, you know, and I think like in a lot of immigrant communities, it's like you'll find like entire communities that work at Amazon. Right. You know, but it's, I mean, I think that's why the Teamsters are engaged because they're like, we have these jobs that are like $35 an hour and you pay like 17 and it's ruining us too, you know? So, right. Yeah. um, Anyway, I think that's an opportunity. Like it's, Again, I'm not like super yeah. hopeful, <laughs> but I think there's a growing recognition that like, holy shit, we're fucked if we don't do something about this. Yeah. As it gets bigger. Yeah. I, w- I think as it gets bigger and more attention is paid to it, maybe. Yeah. Would you be okay with Amazon if they paid $35 an hour? Well, that, that so that's like a real live debate, <laughs> right? Like yeah. in the labor world too. It's like, yeah, antitrust, but like, hey, if they just like actually abide by like labor peace like meaning like they respect unions and they like pay good wages. Like, can we live with this monster? Right. Because the other, you know? the other action is that by like unionizing one shop basically and getting one victory, you've won this huge thing as opposed to the alternative, which is that you have 500 of these things floating around and 490 of them are, you know, breaking the law in some sort of way. Like, right. You know, I think we can argue, we can pr- pretty convincingly argue that, none of them are going to, in good faith, be good shops, you know? Yeah. Like, what, what's the example of something like that? I guess, like, Costco or something like that? Costco would be, like, a Costco's big, big, uh, community, like, a big corporate entity that has, like, pretty decent yeah. or well-touted, like, uh, yeah. right. Um, I mean, they're anti-union, but they're a high-end employer. <laughs> right, right. But they, but it, it's, they're anti-union in the same way that many, but, like, that's about maybe the best you're going to get from something like Costco. That's right. right? Like, right, yeah, yeah. Right. So, I think for sure. Like, if Amazon just became Costco, is that better than having, like, 500 <laughs> different Amazons around 400? I know. I, mean, I think that's, which, right? like, a real question. Oh, so that is a debate within the... Yeah, yeah. The but, I mean, I think we're so far from that. And I, my personal view of that is, like, we need to still break them up. Because, like, it's just, like, it's not okay to have, like, one company basically provide, like, every single good and service in your life, you know? Like, you just can't have, like, a democracy, basically, when you live that way. And you can't have good conditions for workers. So I I also personally don't think we're ever going to get a Bezos-style company to that point anyway. So... Right. Um, yeah. Like working within that system. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. But it's it's really fascinating to think about. Yeah. Keeps me up at night. You know, I think Matt Broenig did this where he was basically arguing that chain restaurants are better than having mom and pop restaurants because you can regulate the labor and the salaries better within within those types of things. I find it kind of convincing, you know, and I do think that most of the reasons why people were are opposed to that sort of stuff are mostly aesthetic, right? In terms of like, oh, I just, you know, I want to go to like X type of restaurant. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go to a world of Applebee's. (laughs) <laughs> like as somebody who was a reporter who spent many, many, much, much, much of the time in some of America's less glamorous cities, I don't know. It's not so bad. <laughs> you know, many meals at Chili's. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> slept at a Hampton Inn. It's like, well, I don't know. You know, like uh, Hampton like, Inns aren't so bad. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's okay. I mean, I would go to less restaurants and I'd probably just eat at home more. You know, and you know, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's I. I don't necessarily have. I don't come down either way on this, honestly. But like, it was an interesting thought, and you know, it's like if you yeah sort of put that thinking out there for sure. It's like well, we can't. You know, how many little like how many little fights are we going to really 
be able to win. I think right? that exact. I think that's right. And I, but I think like what that that question to me like it begs a question of like what were the conditions where we could press really large corporations into negotiating with unions before? And like a lot of that stuff doesn't exist anymore legally. You know. Right. Right. Um, I was talking to a friend who does like a microbrewery, and like at one point there was like a labor thing around like the Budweiser companies you know, labor practices and they have unions. And she was just like, it's really messed up that you're supporting like these large corporations just because they have unions, you know? And I think <laughs> right. like, that's like a, a microcosm of that, of just like, she's like, yeah, but you should shop local, even though like we don't have unions, you know? Right. But I don't know. I guess the, 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 the sort of greatest hope would be that everything looks kind of like Boulder, Colorado or Berkeley, right? Where it's like worker owned collectives, right? That mm -hmm. um, sort of a place of chains or something like that, right? But that also seems to, are good. <laughs> seem to be very far. Bob's Red Mill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a worker, like worker co-op, I think, right? Right. Or Berkeley Bowl, for example, is too, yeah. you know, and that's sort of the main um, but you know, I don't know. I think that requires like basically a city with like that would vote like ninety percent Democrat, right? And that people <laughs> have all sorts of radical politics within, which is I don't know, six cities in the country. Right yeah. Now. So it's um, hard to scale that. Yeah. Yeah. Even like <laughs> I, I can't even imagine like going to like Hillsborough, North Carolina and being like, let's right. start over. But maybe they have some there. I don't know. It's getting hippier and hippier, I guess. So um, Western US college towns basically. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or like Asheville, North Carolina would be oh, like yeah. a place, right? Like that yeah. that type of thing could happen. So yeah, I don't know. At some point I had this take that like that hit that America needs to be more hippified or like hippified. You know? <laughs> Basically, we need to remember hippie. Um, is Cheeseboard it also a co-op? It is a collective. Okay. Yeah, a collective. Yeah. Okay. It's just like you know, I, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot here. Yeah, you know, this yeah, is yeah. a place where they would be. And For sure. I don't think that you can really model anything based on anything here. Um, it's part of its charm. Um, okay. Uh, so the last thing, is there anything else you want to say about this? No, I'm glad we talked about it. Um, there, we have some listener questions. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah. And, you know, I nice. think it's good for us to do it. So uh, the first comes from Stephanie. Um, and these are the thoughts on the New York City mayor's race, which seems to be wrapped up at this point. Like the whatever ranked choice voting might have some weird outcomes that nobody seems to know. <laughs> what it could possibly be. I don't understand why people can't actually predict what this is, you know, like, uh, like on predicted, for example, Adams is at 86 cents, you know, and Garcia is at 14 cents. It's been that way for a while. And it's just like, how has nobody figured out who won at this point, you know? And like, is there no indication from anything that you can give to give a more predictive thing other than, I don't know, ranked choice voting is weird. <laughs> We've never done it before, but apparently that's where we're at. Right. That's but I think there's most, most likely Adams will win here. Um, yeah. And uh, the, like the question is, like, is there anything, quote, racial to the way Yang cratered vis-a-vis -vis the other centrist with similar incoherent platforms? Okay. Andy, what do you think? Um, well, yeah, that was my take on what Stephanie was asking. I actually had a conversation with her about this, which is, you know, this question of, you know, Yang was, we talked about him for months as like the front runner. You know, we made jokes about on this show that he was the next mayor of New York City. And then he finishes like fourth, right? And is there any coherent explanation for why he finished behind everyone else? Is there a policy explanation or is, you know, is it, there's some like funny business going on in terms of the perception? And, you know, this, I don't, 
I'm not in New York City. I don't know the perception of him in New York, but I almost wonder, I don't know, like, if Tammy, you have thoughts, or Jay, talk to your friends in New York, have any thoughts on, was he perceived as almost, like, worse than the other centrists who, as far as I could tell, they're all pretty much the same, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Are they the same? Um, uh, I don't know. I don't live in New York, and I didn't see these ads. I only experienced this through you know, reading about it on social media, which, you know, 9 billion people have said (laughs) now the Adams victory proves that like, uh, social media is not the democratic party, which is the same shit we heard during Bernie and Biden. Right. And I don't look, this is a take I generally agree with, but I don't understand why it said so much, right? Like who actually believes that social media is like the real (laughs) representation of the democratic party? Like nobody thinks that, right? Like, and like, I think the argument is essentially that like a lot of people on social media who have big platforms are like more favorable towards very left leaning candidates, you know, and that um, that's not reality. But then it's just like, well, what do you want people to do? Like, do you want them to lie about who they actually support? Right. And like, um, you know, like who is actually being fooled by any of this? Nobody thought that Maya Wiley was ever going to win. Right. Like, did, did anyone have that thought ever? <laughs> like, she, She's never in the running, you know, so um, she I don't did know. pretty I, well, though. I was surprised. Oh, sure. But like, you know, and then, um, you know, and then there's like sort of this like nagging of like even stuff like, uh, you know, like the victory in Buffalo and saying like, oh, it's such a small turnout, et cetera, et cetera. Right. <laughs> and like it seems like there's yeah, this really? like almost like cleaning up that's being done by like yeah, people like it. maybe some of them in the press, but also some of them in, uh, you know, I think within the Democratic Party itself to try and reorient what the what the uh, Democratic Party is. Hmm. And I don't know. I just like for me, it's just like, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm like alone in this, but I've just never had the thought that the Democratic Party was anything except what it obviously is. Like, did anyone think that like a left leaning candidate was going to win the mayor of New York City? There's no way. Right. Like, of course, it was going to be like a full on centrist because it usually is, you know, (laughs) it's like like de Blasio is the most left leaning politician that's been the mayor of New York in a long time. And Bloomberg is Republican. Giuliani is Republican. Right. right? Like, so like in what world is it going to suddenly go from like de Blasio to like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like Tiffany Caban or something. And she didn't run for, you know, like somebody who's like very firmly on the left. Uh, like obviously that wasn't going to happen. I don't think any people were surprised at this result. I don't know. I guess the question is from what my understanding is Adams is pretty conservative, right? And I mean, are we saying like Adams out or well, I guess the question is why did Yang crater in a way that it sounds like nobody else cratered as badly? Is that a, yeah. And I I guess the implication would be like, is there sort of an anti-Asian or, you know, Asian as outsider thing going on with the messaging? Um, Did that work? I mean, Um, I don't know if that, I guess I would put it this way. Like, I think at the end of the day, Adams and Yang basically came to represent the same things, the same values, the same proposals, and they were trying to like cater or recruit the same sorts of voters. And when it comes down to that, I think like obviously Adams is way more legible, but he also has like a longer history in New York City politics and he's like the Brooklyn borough president, you know, so it's a little bit hard to compare. But I mean, I guess you like an Asian American studies professor might do like a racial reading of that. I don't know. But I yeah. do think, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why Adams is more quote unquote legible. And it's not just about being black. 
Right. Yeah. And it, but it is also about being black. Sure. You know, like yeah. I think that if like you look at it. Like the Charles his... Blow column was like black, you know, power back in New York politics. I mean, it's ridiculous, but. Right. And there's like a lot of like people who, like if you look at the people that like the actual neighborhoods that voted strongly for Adams, you know, it's in the Bronx, right? Yeah. Um, it's in Southern Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. right? Mm-hmm. And the, and the, the population that voted for Yang are like in Flushing. You know, Chinatown. So, you know, like identity politics like works in a lot of ways. Right. And that can ascribe a lot to it. And like, I don't think that it can be totally discounted. And I don't understand why people would want to discount it, even if you like fully oppose it. You know, (laughs) like, like, of course, it's like an actual thing that happens. And with Adams, I don't know. I, 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 I do think, look, here. I think the two are separate. Right. I don't think that like what happens on, you know, not to like, go back on what i just said but like you know like just to pre-emphasize i don't think that what happens on twitter really matters too much in the electorate and i don't mm-hmm. you know and do, given that prior i do think that like some of the stuff that was lobbed at yang was like somewhat racist you know or at least like racial in its like origins right like sort of that new york daily news cartoons like yeah. pretty you know just like well i wish you hadn't written that but i'm not gonna like get too mad about it like you know, and, you know, some of the tone of some of the people, I think, who were most mad about Yang at the beginning, of, you know, like sort of not knowing about subway lines or something like that. There's like something that's kind of, you know, there's something that's somewhat disturbing about that. Right. Like Yang has almost certainly lived in New York City longer than any of those people. Right. Like a lot of those people are people who just like moved to New York City to work in media jobs. And so you can point these things out and you can just be like, Ugh, you know, but like in the end, like, is that the. Is that why he had a downfall? I don't think so. Was it because he came out and said the stuff he said about uh, Israel right. and Palestine, and then that he sort actually, of retracted it? That we, huh? Yeah, that did that, see. It did feel that it way. It did coincide with that, but I don't necessarily think that's also why people sort of bailed on Andrew Yang. You know, yeah. Um, like the only actual, like sort of real thing that came out of it was that the sort of uh, population in South. Williamsburg, um, who had supported Yang, pulled their support and put it behind Adams. It's a huge Mm -hmm. concerted voting block there. So if anything, like, you know, it harmed him to go back on the statement that he paid more than it harmed (laughs) him to, like, make the statement. Right. right? So um, I don't know. I I think that it was I I think that what basically it is, is that what, you know, a lot of polling dudes were saying at the beginning or, you know, polling people are saying at the beginning, which is that, like, you know, at the beginning, he has a huge advantage in name in name right. recognition and then over time that fades because the other candidates all have money that they can spend to get in front of people right i think uh the new york times endorsing garcia and basically allowing manhattan you know giving manhattan somebody or a lot of people in manhattan mm-hmm. somebody that they could uh basically just say okay that one you know mm-hmm. i think that that probably had some <laughs> effect as well but i don't know i think more than anything it was really just that like uh he didn't really have much to say at all like beyond just being enthusiastic right and then the stuff he did say um seemed to all be cynical in this way that i think that people kind of eventually saw through right like this guy will say anything like the he ends his campaign the last thing that we hear from him is him saying this vile stuff about about homeless mentally ill people right like i mean that was like that that was, was so disturbing it was just weird it was just like really you know like that's your statement that like you know we have a right to not be harmed by these people so what are you going to do you're going to lock them all up like giuliani you know (laughs) like is that what you're arguing and 
Like, I don't think that if you asked Andrew Yang three years ago that th- th- these would be his stances. I think these are things that he was fed by polling. Yeah. And it, in a way, it like that part of it where it just seemed like he was so rudderless and like believes in so little mm-hmm. and that he's willing to to sort of do whatever it takes to be liked and like, you know, like basically go against the narrative on Twitter or something. I think it just made him into a very unlikable type of candidate. But yeah. I also just think that like in the end, people vote when they're informed or like maybe they weren't informed, but they're just going to vote for the people, you know, they're not going to put much thought into it. Right. And yeah. so, um, the people I don't they know. know, like, why would you vote for Andrew Yang? <laughs> You know, like, as long as you understand that there's somebody who's kind of like Andrew Yang, who's not Andrew Yang, you know, like, I I think that's what it was. I I mean, I think that, yeah. I do think, you know, even though he lost, or maybe precisely because he lost, and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to him next, like, so much Asian stuff was put on him in terms of, like, Mm -hmm. stuff written about him, you know, and, like, different constituencies pulling on him that... Like, I can imagine a world where, like, maybe he, like, takes a step back from politics and never runs again, never wins anything. Uh, and then, like, you know, he or someone in his campaign, like, writes about, like, what was going on behind the scenes in terms of, like, what does it mean to run as an Asian politician? Um, like, I'm not saying he's the most successful. Obviously, there are a lot of successful politicians, Asian-American politicians with, like, you know, decades in, in Congress and so on. But in a way, like, it was a really interesting... Gary Locke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gov- my governor, Gary Locke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> At least he won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, I do, but I feel like there was a sort of interesting thing happening. Again, maybe just this is just the discourse, which is, you know, immaterial, about like <laughs> different directions he was being pulled in, right? Uh, in terms of like, is he progressive? Um, like, what, like, how does he cater to mm-hmm. the progressive Asians who are younger? But how does he... Uh, speak to a, a non-Asian, more than Asian constituency while also retaining the Asian constituency. And I do feel like I read several pieces by Asian American writers who are like, this is our time <laughs> you know, to weigh in on Andrew Yang uh, as, 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 our, as our candidate, right? Like wow, we have, yeah. we have not inside information, but like we have, uh, this is almost <laughs> like a personal person. Like, you know, if I were to write about a random, you know, like, xyz politician who's not asian it's like well i only know about as as much as anyone else watching the news or whatever but with andrew yang i feel like if i if i didn't write about him but if i were to write about him i could like kind of imagine like what is he like in real life what is his family like what are the his family networks like before he ran for president you know you could someone showed me these youtube clips of him like going to like the brown asian american club and talking about like the need we need more of us you know in CEO positions and in yeah. law firms and so on. It's a very legible, like, Asian-American discourse that he seems to, I think he kind of, like, abandoned um, as he tried to go bigger, right? Mm. And uh, so, I don't know, I think there's something interesting about, like, not not the career of Yang, but maybe, like, the test case of Yang in terms of, like, what does it mean to be Asian-American and try to win things where you, you know, he mm. won, as you said, Flushing and Chinatown, but can't win new york just with flushing in chinatown right you have to right speak well, on that and he and adams were in a lot of ways after the same constituency which is outer borough right That's people of color exactly who um and their general gambit was that these people are more conservative than um than than twitter says they are and again i'm just like yeah that's true you know but it doesn't mean that you can that 
your way of like appealing to them is essentially being like, hey, Twitter says X, but really I know that you're like, why? And then the person's like, what the fuck's Twitter? You know, and then you just start <laughs> saying a bunch of reactionary shit, hoping yeah. that it sticks to the wall without really understanding what these constituencies want, you know? And it's like fine to be like, yeah, I don't think that many people in Flatbush or out in the Bronx or whatever believe in police abolition, for example, right? Like that's a fundamental truth, right? Like, although, you know, like people will point to local elections where people like that won, which, you know, shows that the situation is more complicated. But like in a citywide election, it's a little bit harder, right? But I don't know. I think Adams probably did a better job of talking to that constituency because, you know, not to sort of conflate the outsider thing, but like, you know, because he has worked in those communities for much longer and he understands those communities much better and how to appeal to them. And all Andrew Yang has is like reactionary stuff, right? Everyone says charter (laughs) schools are bad. What if I said charter schools are good? You know, everyone is like very, like, uh, very sensitive about the homeless. What if I said, fuck the homeless, you know, like everybody like that, that was basically his campaign. And it's, you know, maybe if he had only, if this whole thing, like uh, election cycle was only five weeks, maybe he would have won. You know, yeah. but at some point, somebody right. just says the same thing you're saying better and more specifically and talking to the actual people that are supposed to vote. And Yang never did that because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that's what he was interested in. I think he was just interested in sort of being reactionary and then also being like the enthusiastic guy that was everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think those parts are necessarily racialized, you know? No, I yeah, think, I don't I don't yeah. think it's racialized. But uh, yeah, it makes me wonder, like, what? Like, did he galaxy brain himself into these corners, right? Maybe, <laughs> then, maybe, you or know, him like, and, you know, right. Of being like, I can't be seen as or maybe Bradley too Tosk out there. did, right? Yeah, or yeah, right. maybe his yeah. whatever. I mean, it just seemed like a disaster of a campaign, you know? Yeah. Just basically. I mean, outside of the, the fact that he was terms. winning for a lot of it, yeah. Right. But, like, you know, but once once the rubber yeah. hit the road, right? Yeah. Like, um, how do you squander that type of lead? Yeah. I think right. is, like, going to be examined. And obviously everyone's going to just, like, sort of, use it to you know to everyone's going to basically say use it to like uh confirm their ideological priors and all of this and you already see this happening but i don't know i don't i don't think is there a successful way i mean we don't have an example but a successful way for an asian american politician to run for new york city mayor then because he tried to be like the one, right? The sort of. Well, I think John Liu was driving turns out for a long time. Obviously, his campaigns collapsed for various right, reasons, right. and you know, Never and he there. endorsed Yang, which is kind of yeah. interesting. Right. Um, you know, all I think the Asians Ron, did. Yeah, yeah, and Ron Kim, obviously, that was Ron a big Kim endorsed him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that, what that would look like. Um, yeah. I think it's also just not an East Asian question because I think there's also like different kinds of like South Asian visibility in New York City that could potentially, you know, there could be a space for that in the future. I mean, I can't I don't think there is a politician who's poised for that right now. Um, yeah. But there were some interesting city council races that played with that. Um, right. I think also I just wanted to say I know we have other questions it's just like on the on the Yang, the meaning of Yang. I think it's also like a it was sort of an indictment of like UBI. I mean, not because I think like it showed like the kind of like ideological emptiness of it. I mean, initially like UBI's appeal was that it could bring together like leftists and libertarians and all that, right. That it didn't have like necessarily ideological content. But the thing is when you don't have ideological content, you don't have anything. Like, I think, you know, I don't know where like UBI proponents are now with this because Did you right. talk about it in New York. I think it's an ugly, ugly outcome, huh? For sure, he didn't yeah. really talk about it, which is that's strange, the thing. Right? Like that was the thing yeah. people were excited about. You know, all the math, all that stuff was like around, right. like oh, economic policy, let's do this, right? And like 
you know, that completely yeah. went out. And right. He had, he had no central, like, at least yeah. in the presidential election, he had that thing to exactly. talk about all the right. time. And yeah. then once he didn't have that anymore, he just became yeah. a reactionary. Totally. And that's, like, yeah. not particularly appealing to anybody. <laughs> and it was like, I don't know, when two people are going after the same thing and one is better than the other, then the other person wins. Like, that's basically right. what it came down to. And uh, yeah, he went from like overachieving underdog with a gimmick to mm-hmm. front runner with with no gimmick and <laughs> slowly collapsing. You know, it's he had basically two different campaign experiences, right? My sense of this, like, there is a when Riang is running for president, Virgil from Chapo uh, interviewed him. Have you heard this interview? Mm-mm. No, Virgil, it was a good interview. Virgil like sort of grilled him on UBI. You know, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Well, are you going to cut these entitlements?" And he never gave a clear. Answer. Interesting. And he was once again grilled when he started running for mayor of New York on whether or not these entitlements were going to be going away or if everybody was going to basically have things cut and then they're just going to get one UBI check that would equal less of the entitlements that they had now. He tried giving answers and he said, look at my website, but the website was pretty vague about that too. You know? yeah. And I think that in the end, maybe he just realized, maybe someone in his campaign realized that like UBI was a losing issue. And they decided to go full on culture war. And like, I don't know, you know, it makes yeah. me it, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like kind of just dis- it's disappointing, right? Like where like you can figure out anything to say. And I don't think we need to racialize it outside of like the whole like stuff like, oh, you're not even from New York. We're just like, OK, you know, no, I'm, I'm not saying it's really racialized in sort in some sort of like he's a victim or anything kind of way. Just more like, you know, like what? What does it mean to, I mean, you know, the stuff we talk yeah. about all the time. Like, like he tried to be an Asian American candidate. The particular and the like, general, how do you balance these things out? What does it mean? You know, yeah. like how, how, how would any of us try to win mayor of New York as Asian Americans? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what I would say. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are some issues where you have to basically go against the, you know, traditional progressive consensus, right? Like, for example, on schools, right? Like, you can't, you can't argue for, you know making Stuyvesant any different, right? Like, or else you'll, but like, you know, you don't have to do that about everything. And, you know, his, <laughs> right. his stance on all that stuff was really vague too. Yeah, you I know, don't he think didn't. he ever said, yeah. Um, the one thing that I would say, would say though that I do think is a real thing is that I think that like uh, what the Adams victory and what, you know, the fact that progressive candidates didn't do so well on is that, I don't know, like, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while because I know that, Yang also had a thought about it, too, which is that, like, I think a lot of people vote based on schools, you know, um, because it's the thing that's most yeah. important if you have a kid and determines where you live. It determines basically everything. And um, I don't know. You know, I don't like it seems like all the top candidates essentially are just like not touching the charter school question, you know, and um I think that if you are hard anti-charter school, that you will lose that population of outer borough people of color, like immediately. So they're the ones that send their kids to charter schools, right? Uh, they're the ones who support charter schools. If you look at every poll, most of the opposition to charter schools come from white people in New York City, you know, and most of the support for charter schools come from black and brown people in New York City. And so I don't know. I wonder how that issue is going to be debated in the past because I think that's basically why nobody touched it this entire um, and I think that if you were anti-charter school then you know you, there's, you have right. zero chance of winning. Suicide. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so you either don't talk about it or you support them, you know, and you make up a straw man of all these people want to eliminate charter schools. And, you know, I don't know. I think that's that's one that is one thing that I took out of it, you know, but um, like perhaps like this is not a winnable issue or it's a winnable issue in a, in a way that's not rooted in electoral politics, at least city wise. I don't know. Perhaps I'm wrong about that. If I am, you know, right into the show. All right. Last question here before we go. Sam slash Stephanie would like to know, uh, you know, would like to hear more about this uh, term that Andy came up with last episode <laughs> called Asian pessimism. I, I, Andy, I got to say, I think this is a great term that you made here. So, um, and I think that why don't you explain the premise of it? No, I think it was just what we've already been talking about for the last year, which is this uh, way that it seems like Asian American discourse leaders are trying to create an Asian analogy to uh, the sort of origin story of oppression, sort of like static oppression that came out a lot, obviously, with the Atlanta shootings, right? Kind of tracing like from Chinese Exclusion Act to Atlanta. Um, in a way that kind of mirrored in, in a very kind of loose sense, sort of like from slavery to, you know, um, black oppression today. Right. Um, and I guess the broader question is like, why, why, you know, I mean, this is like a repetition of last week's conversation, but like, why, why wouldn't we have like more optimistic conversations about how things are getting better? Um, I guess probably when we were kids, we were surrounded by those optimistic conversations, like multiculturalism and celebrating difference and all that. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. There's something <laughs> perhaps structural at play that either structural at play where we all are pessimistic, or it could be just like another example of like all racial minority discourse in the United States. Um, not all, but you know, like there's a lot of the visible forms of it are kind of taking their cues from what happens. Um, among like black writers talking about the black experience. Right. And that's a history of other racial minority discourse, period. Right. It always follows black discourse um, by a couple of years, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. you basically replicate the same thing. And um, yeah. Tammy, what do you think? I mean, I guess the one, I, I think it's a really interesting question, but I think the thing that makes it hard to answer in this context is like the reasons we've been talking about Asian Americanism over the past year are because of violence and like the sort of extreme spectacular violence of Atlanta. And like it in response to that is the analysis of like, who are we and where do we come from? And you're not going to have an optimistic analysis coming out of that because the provocation is based on violence. So I don't, you know, mm. it's a little bit, it becomes a little bit theoretical in that sense. But yeah, I do think there there isn't I, I can't think of a group that has a way of telling their history without indexing certain monuments of violence and oppression. Yeah. Um, I just I don't know. I mean, in, in some ways, that's just maybe like a natural form of storytelling, because that sets you up for some kind of upward trajectory if you like start with like the most horrible stuff. <laughs> but, you know, why that ends in pessimism right now and like yeah. why we can't see like a, a brighter future. I, I don't really know. I mean, the the bizarre part, of course, is like of all of the parts of the so-called developing world, you know, what used to be called the developing world, Asia's been, like, knocking out of the park, you know, for decades now. And if there is um, a racial minority in the United States that could point to all the great things, quote-unquote great things that their people are doing, 
it would be Asians. But that's not right? their people, right? That's like that's the people. that's the argument I mean, of Asian American yeah. that, that doesn't need to be indexed to that, and we don't need to be perpetual foreigners. Right, so right. That would undermine the. the like, I don't care about for that. the the growth of the K-pop industry since my family's been here in the United States. You know, like it doesn't bring me any specific pride. Like I think people who feel prideful about that are crazy nationalists. You know. Like who believe in like some sort of weird form, like the the it's obviously like some form of like eugenics or something where it's like our people are capable, you know, because like there yeah. are people. Like I, I just I don't. But see that's the not value weird. That's that. what model minority discourse was for all these decades. So I guess the question is, without putting a moral judgment on it, why would it? Why was it model minority discourse in the twentieth century, and why are Asian Americans like rejecting that and going towards this pessimist view? even as K-pop and China continue to rise, you know? Oh, because they don't feel any connection to any of that stuff, I think. But like, I don't think model minorities did in the 20th century. Either, I don't though. think the model minority Yeah, but I don't think it was rooted either. in anything yeah, like I think, that. I, I think, think it was, it was rooted in concern. success in the United States, you know? Mm. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I think you are unique, Andy, and you're thinking about international identity. Most Asian Americans don't, you know? I certainly don't. You don't think Korean Americans care about K-pop and K-Wave and all that stuff? Like doing no, well I don't. I don't think that they like deeply identify. Like I, if they do deeply <laughs> I mean, identify watching, and say like K-dramas, you know, like, like oh, stuff you is know, like, like I'm excited, but I don't. Right, think but if they're saying like, like oh, like Bong Joon Ho or something like that is like proof that I'm like a superior person to like you know these like no, X no, country, it, and then then they're just nationalists. But know? just in general, like it is you know like as as Ollie London has taught us, right. The status of Koreans has never been higher in the eyes of the rest of the world. Uh-huh. Right. But, you but know, you're asking whether that gives the Korean diaspora cause for optimism where they are. Yeah, and I don't self, that that's yeah. the answer. I don't I don't know. You know, I mean, I think for some people, yeah. But I think for other people, it might have an, an opposite effect, which is like, why am I here and not there? Right. Right. I think that's a <laughs> sure, more common just, thing. You know, right? or, right. Why did my parents come here? <laughs> like, or, I should you know, move back or whatever. Um, my SAT score is not good enough here. So like, uh, I don't. I, I think that most of it is a desire for solidarity. It comes out of a desire for solidarity, and I do think that there is something good that comes out of this, which is that it sort of disabuses the white adjacent narrative, right? And I think that a lot of mm-hmm. Asian people, young yeah. Asian people specifically, are coming to uh, like a sort of like violent and you know uh, you know unpleasant end to that type of idea, right? Like sort of the white adjacency thing. But then it's just like, okay, then how? Who? Who are we? You know, and like, how do, how can we like tactfully say who we are? Just like, okay, well, then you go plumb history, right? And then you build a narrative of oppression, of historic oppression, and then you come out with something that says like, I am X, right? And therefore, I should have natural solidarity pathways with with other groups. Now, it just takes more work than that, you know. Um, yeah. And I right. think that the idea is that if you can identify as X, and you know, then 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 other groups would naturally see you as an ally, but like, that's just not how things work. You know, I do think, but I do think it's important to sort of get rid of the white adjacency narrative generally. And maybe this work is like yeah. basically starting to do that. And so what was that narrative that we should assimilate and well, more that like that, you know, Asian people are basically white people. We'll always benefit from it. And we're on right. the trajectory of right. assimilation. And that's like obviously like a very class bound thing, right? That only affects a certain portion of the Asian population, um, the high earning portion of the population, and you know, um, basically turns everything into like one 
type of story of an East Asian person who, you know, is successful. Like, uh, so fighting it back against that is correct. But once again, you know, and this is what we talked about last week. I don't know if history's lessons are the one, the place that we should go for that. You know, I don't know. Maybe we should look at what Asian Americans are like now. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Like, there's a fucking idea. Um, no, let's say history. Huh? Buy more history books. <laughs> no, I, re- <laughs> I like it, it is frustrating to me <laughs> at some level where it's just like, can't we find the answer by like going out and reporting and talking to people doing you know like or just yeah. like accurately yeah. portraying this population as opposed to just like trying to find traumatic points in history to string together to create a narrative that we're all the same you know like it's yeah. like a form of racialized essentializing that i find to be baffling but you know whatever um i think before the waves of anti-asian violence also there was we i think we were actually in a point of optimism for Asian America, like at least in, at a kind of high level of representational politics because of the success of Asians in Hollywood, and all, you know, all this stuff that we kind of make fun of, but it's still like a real thing that is meaningful to people. I do think, you know, a year or two or three ago, yeah. I think I think there was optimism about, about this racial category. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we had made it because mm-hmm, of crazy rich Asians. Yeah. yeah. No, many people did feel that way. Right? Yeah. yeah, just because we didn't doesn't mean anything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just three people. Uh, Asian okay. pessimism is only in our Discord. What about uh, <laughs> yeah. Cliff Fjord's question here? Um, right. Are there any wins in the news for leftist workers, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera uh, lately? <laughs> All <Tammy>? the people. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll just mention one. I was pretty excited. I mean, this is self-interested, but I was pretty excited about the New Yorker's you know, tentative contract win. And I know this is a, you know, very elite slice of an elite media <laughs> world. Leftist workers and immigrants. <laughs> I know. Like, I know there are some immigrants <laughs> among the staff. No, but I mean, leftist, yeah, right. I think yeah. this is important workers, because right. it's yeah. important because of the symbolic value of the New Yorker. And I'm not, you know, one of these snobs who's like, it's the only magazine that matters or whatever. But I do, I'm proud of the workers there. And I think like the, their, their threat to go on strike was real and like it was backed up and like in that sense it's just a good lesson for like workers yeah. everywhere which is that like you need to make your 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 strike threat real you can't give up your right to a strike which we see in so many union contracts and just in the thinking of the labor movement so congratulations to them and may it be you know a symbol and not just a, this one fight as a as a non-media person what is the symbol symbolic value of the new yorker um I don't know if you want to, like, draw on about the establishment of it. (laughs) Well, I don't know. You know, I think that as media becomes more decentralized, you know, over the next 10 years or something like that, and little shops open up and people sort of go, you know, like almost like a gig economy type of model, making their own type of thing. Although I think that, you know, like the idea that like a Substack is going to be like Uber or something like that is ridiculous, you know? Um, Like there are just too many, like it's not like you need an actual car and to drive somebody somewhere. Right, like to, you just need like a hosting service for a newsletter or something like that. So it's harder so to we, imagine. We disclose having... that we're on Substack. <laughs> 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 well, sure, yeah, we can disclose it, but yeah, you know, like I, I don't, I don't think that like that is coming, you know. But I do think that people's more and more people will become freelance. More and more people will be part of like uh, bad, bad working environments, mm-hmm. you know, like bad, bad working conditions that they will be exploited more and more. And that I think that there is a symbolic value to having like the the sort of shining beacon on the hill 
show them that this can happen, especially given the seeming impossibility. Like if you had told me like, uh, you know, seven years ago that this was going to happen, I'd be like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why, why is that though? Like, well, because people who work there are, that's their dream job, you know? Yeah. Um, it's very hard to convince people to go against an institution that's as vaunted and as important uh, to the workers themselves as that place, you know? Um, yeah, and exactly. Like, and I think like when you we don't started, organi- yeah, when we started organizing there, like I was very nervous that we wouldn't get enough people because of this, because of this feeling of like, I like this is the job that's going to make me a staff writer. That's going to make me like, you know, David Remnick, you know, and, and so I think the fact that it's gone like super radical <laughs> and that all these young people and like a truly like diverse and incredibly like energetic group has been able to take a stand and also like hopefully set standards within Condé Nast you know because it wasn't just the New Yorker it was also Ars Technica and Pitchfork we should mention um so hopefully that'll just spread more through the magazine world and elsewhere right right um and it's I don't know it's been basically a lot five years now of media companies organizing or media workers organizing and um you know it's important to have like the you know culturally most important one do that uh, so that other people who are in worse, you know, who might be in worse situations or, you know, similar situations can sort of see, hey, it's possible, you know. I think it's important symbolically that way for sure. I also think it's important for the people who work there. For you know? sure. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is good news. Um, <laughs> okay. What Anything about else? you guys? Um, good what? news? Good news? Hmm. Andy? I don't know. No. <laughs> Honestly, I just watch the NBA playoffs and then do work during the day. Yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> I've been watching way too much basketball. It's like getting kind of sick. And then I've been playing video games with my kid. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, just, I, I like, I'm like slowly readjusting to life, you know, things reopening. Yeah. And most of the time I go to, things and i'm just like i wish i hadn't done that but then i feel like i have to force myself to do that so that i don't just sit at home all the time you know you mean for uh, reasons you're worried about going out no but like you know i just don't want to do it oh yeah Yeah. i don't don't need to leave the house need to get more into the rhythm again of life and right right Oh, there was good news last month also, just quickly. There were two, um, Biden was forced to close two really big immigrant detention centers at the end of May, or will announce that he would. So that, I think that, like, immigrant rights people are pretty excited about that, even though a lot of stuff is really, really bad. Right. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, we should do a show about, quote, the border at some point. For sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Maybe we'll do that next week. Uh, Okay. Well, thank you for... um, (laughs) Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. Sometimes we do it twice a week. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up at Substack or goodbye.substack.com. There's an option to subscribe for $5 a month. You get access to our Discord uh, server, which is still going strong, um, and uh, bonus episodes. And you can do the same thing at Patreon at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. If you want to email the show, our email is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. 
And if you want to reach us on Twitter, it's at TTSGpod. Our DMs are open. You can send us whatever message you'd like there, and we will read it. Um, yeah. Anything else? Okay. But um, I think this this is a week in which on Friday or so we will release a inter- my interview with like Daryl Owens, who is a yeah. housing. Uh, you know, he's sort of like a it's a housing activist is the right way to put it. You know, um, here in the Bay Area, who uh, is sort of you know, big on the, I think he's like big on Yimby Twitter would be a good way to put it. And we had a very lively conversation about, you know, uh, public housing in my backyard movement, like what the real, real sort of goals are, what we can actually expect and housing zoning and stuff like that. I don't know. I enjoyed the conversation. So <laughs> I hope you will too. Um, until next week, uh, talk to you later. Bye. Bye.